0: It's uh, just a real privilege uh, to be here today and to be invited. Thank you, Harry, for inviting Eric and I to come sure. to be a part of the community lunch and, and the chapel service today. Uh, and, uh, Nineteen years ago, I was getting uh, my studies here at KDM. Uh, at that point, we had um, our uh, little Tristan uh, on the way, and he was born while we were studying, and our daughter Emma was born here in Halifax while we were studying in Nova Scotia. And uh, it's just uh, a real honor to be able to share uh, as uh, Harry mentioned, I, I really believe that um, the studies and my experience here at Acadia really prepared me for working cross-culturally, to work ecumenically, and to think theologically, reflect on the situation. And, and no, no professor or faculty can prepare you for everything if you're a student, <laughs> but they give us tools, and we need to use them as best we can, and I'm truly grateful for, for the experience of, of studying and reflecting and the ongoing relationship that we have, because we never stop learning and these relationships that we form, especially in these years, they'll, they'll be good for the rest of our... I have my Bible upside down, by the way. <laughs> does not reflect Acadia's education. It's <laughs> 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 on the other side of the equator. <laughs> so, uh, just uh, if we go to... Uh, Do you want the video, the, the video? Oh yeah, we have, we'll yeah. go to the video. So we have a short video, it's about two minutes long. And the video, we call it the story behind the story. And it'll give you a chance to see, often we think of Africa, we think of conflict, hunger, and poverty, and a lot of the insecurity and challenges um, that often get reported in the news. And in the areas where we work, um, there is conflict. In fact, every single country of the five that we work in presently is Canadian Baptist in Africa. There is either in the midst of conflict, coming out of conflict, or there's one erupting. Um, and yet, in the midst of that, the church is alive. God is moving. And so we want to talk about some of those hope stories this morning. Let's reflect on First Peter. And these images will try to hopefully kind of spark your imaginations as we come into this time. Thanks. Craven, uh, Ryan Youngblood, and uh, Randy Vanderby. who you see in the little credits that came up. Thanks. Perfect. 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 Yeah. Um, Ryan, a young guy from Texas, and um, he was traveling with us in Kenya up to the Somali border and did actually a, a visit that Erica did into Somalia a number of years ago. And then he was embedded with the M23 Army from Rwanda mm-hmm. and followed them into Congo and then switched sides in that conflict to the Democratic Republic side. So a lot of those gun images were ones that he took while he was traveling with either side of the conflict. Um, These are our family. This is our family. And uh, Eric and I just are really grateful for the support and the love that we've really felt uh, from our Canadian Baptist churches and from from ABC. Uh, It's um, almost a thousand churches that make up our, our family, from Vancouver to Newfoundland. And uh, we've just really appreciated the prayer. And, and there's power in God in prayer. You know, as, as we made the step uh, about 12 years ago to follow uh, this call to serve with Canadian Baptists in Africa, we felt an incredible peace. Uh, our parents didn't feel the peace. <laughs> they, they felt an incredible peace. And, and really, it's, uh, we know it's God and it's the power of the Spirit. And we will been praying for our family and for the work that we do together as Canadian Baptists. So uh, in the pictures, uh, myself and Erica who's here. Our youngest, uh, Ava, who we adopted in Kenya, and uh, Ava's been traveling with us, we've been about 12 weeks now in Canada, and uh, Ava's been homeschooling, and Erica's been doing that, so uh, um, Ava's excited, in two weeks, she returns to Nairobi with Erica, and we'll go back to her class, and all her friends that are there. Uh, but Ava's been a real trooper. It's been a lot, of, a lot of kilometers we put on the CDM vehicles, traveling, visiting churches, but uh, that's uh, coming to an end, she will be returning soon. Uh, then our son Tristan, who uh, is uh, attending Acadia, this is the first winter he'll have experienced since he was six years old. Oh, wow! Okay, he has no idea. <laughs> 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 it's going to be a shock. <laughs> but we're um, really grateful for, for the community. As Rachel and the, the what's uh, happening with the university fellowship has just been a great community mm-hmm. for her to be part of. He's studying theater, and uh, he's uh, I think they're doing. The Last Days of Judas Iscariot or something, so he's backstage on that, but he'll be involved in the theater department here at Acadia. And um, then our daughter Emma, 16 years old, and uh, the, uh, the responsible reason for why she didn't come with us to Canada is that she's on the National Honor Society, she's uh, doing two university credits in grade 11 this year, which is great, she could have done that if she'd come. The real reason is that she's grade 11, all the friends are there and you couldn't have, wild well, horses couldn't have dragged that girl. Uh, but we are really grateful. Emma's just, a, just an incredible young woman and we've got good friends, Kim and Brian Burke, who are her host family and their daughter, Raylin is like a second sister to Emma and they've been having a great fall together. And we just uh, give thanks for her safety and what God's been doing in her life. So, um, we as Canadian Baptist churches, and I know that not everyone studying in Acadia is going to be necessarily working at Canadian Baptist Church, but it's good for you to know that um, 1874, the decision was made by a number of our churches that if we were united in a mission together, we could do more internationally. 1874, our first missionaries were sent uh, to India. And a couple of decades later, to Bolivia. And we continue to work in India Bolivia, but now all these uh, countries see behind me here. Uh, This is uh, our work in Africa which started in 1958. It was a group of missionaries mostly from the Maritimes. People like uh, Fran and uh, Charlie Harvey and John and Virginia Keith and Keith and the Malcolms and these uh, Maritime families that really felt a call to go and serve the Lord in Africa. They went to Angola and um, some of you would know the history that uh, a terrible civil war broke out hundreds of thousands of Angolans fled as refugees into the that time that year, today the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so our Canadian missionaries follow them. And so our work, today we continue working, mostly in theological education, trying to support faculty in Cabinda and Angola. But uh, we're also, um, there we go, Angola. But we're also working in the DRC with the uh, Community of Baptist Churches of Central Africa. And there in Eastern Congo, uh, amidst a lot of, conflict, insecurity, the church is thriving. The church is moving and reaching out to people who are in desperate need of help in times of trauma. And then if you cross Lake Kivu into this little country in the center, mm. it's Rwanda. It's about a third the size of uh, New Brunswick. I think Daryl Boston was here last week, so you've heard all about Rwanda. Um, but we, we're really grateful for the, the great team we have there. People like Andre Sibomana, Gato Muniwasoko, who is an uh, honorary uh, doctorate from Acadia, so some of you might have met Gatto when he was here, was it a year ago? Uh, two. Two years ago, yeah. Is it two? A year, a year two. and a half, yeah, Time mm-hmm. years by. Time flies, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, you met uh, some of you have met Daryl Norley Buston, who were speaking here last week. And Ken and Wendy Dirksen, who are also from our churches in Western Canada. And uh, Jonathan and James Mills who have just finished their term. Jonathan is now pastoring Emmanuel Baptist in Toronto. But uh, Jonathan will be returning over the next two years for a leadership program called the African Leadership Exchange, which we're doing with partners from from across Africa. Then if we go north, we come to South Sudan, our youngest partner. And here, Erica just signed a newest partnership agreement as we committed to walk with the South Sudanese church, faith in the Baptist. And then Kenya is where we live. We work with three different partners there, the African Christian Church and Schools since 1970, the African Brotherhood Church since 1978, and about 30 local congregations embedded in Muslim-majority areas. So at the very bottom of that red dot is Nairobi, where Glenn Wooden has visited. I know some of the rest of you might have visited as well. That's where our family lives and where our daughter is. So today we want to talk about hope, hope in the darkness. As the video kind of introduced, there is a lot of conflict and a lot of struggle. Um, uh, We uh, um, know that um, light, hope is being able to see that there is light even despite the darkness, as Desmond Tutu shared. Uh, these are refugees coming out of South Sudan. And this country, which we broke away from you know, decades and decades of conflict between the Muslim North and the Christian South, and around 2010, when it was born as a, its own country, there was great optimism that this group of Christians would come together and, and form a really vibrant uh, new nation in Central Africa. But, but by 2013, it was torn apart, mostly on tribal lines. And so Dinka and Noor Christians by and large, um, killing one another and now it's at the brink of another genocide like we saw in Rwanda in 1994. Uh, it's just um, a great need for the church to be the church to us to recognize that we are not Jew or Gentile, man or woman, you know, uh, we, we, we are one in Christ and that is our first identity. Uh, the uh, big evangelical Baptist church is a bridge church. It is made up of both Nur and Dinka, those two large tribal groups. Uh, that really are being used to, as a wedge to pull the country apart. And we continue to pray for them as they're drawing people together as peacemakers in that mm. in that conflict. Um, what you might not know is, as Canadian Baptists, we are the only international Baptist organization working right now in South Sudan. Mm. And through our relationship with Canada Food Grains Bank and the Federal Government of Canada, we have a four to one matching grant. So every dollar that Canadians are giving to this work becomes um, multiplied. So, in the last two years, $100,000 raised by Canadian churches has given us half a million dollars to use on the ground, all of it going into the group. And uh, three weeks ago in Bangkok, the Baptist World Alliance was meeting. It was our American brothers uh, who actually got up. It was a group of men. We have brothers and sisters in the US. But um, this group of men from the US got up and said, to Baptists around the world, you know, if you care about what's going on in Sudan give your resources to the Canadians. Their government will match it. (laughs) We have a responsibility though, you know. This is a unique opportunity for us to lift up that church. And the church is growing. Even in the midst of this great time of conflict, um, seven million Sudanese have been displaced by the war. Seven million. These are people who have lost their homes, they've lost their livelihoods, they've lost their farms. Many of them have lost siblings, or brothers, or sisters, or spouses, or parents, or children. Two million of them are now outside of the country. A million in Uganda alone, but hundreds of thousands in Kenya and the surrounding countries. And uh, it's just a great opportunity for us as Canadians to walk with our brothers and sisters in the faith in that time of conflict. And we seek conflict in Kenya. Many of you have heard of the election. Every time there's an election in Africa, there's a great sense of unease. What's gonna happen? And uh, was, it was no different. Um, this election, um, which you've probably heard, they've had to do it twice. Um, leader of the opposition, Raul Odinga, before the first ballot was cast, was saying, this election's rigged. Unless I win, I don't stand for it. And you didn't win. And the week after uh, the election happened on August 8th, we had post-election violence in western Kenya and in the slums of Nairobi. This is Eastleigh, where Erica works, with cell phone groups. And this is a group of young men. Uh, they, they met a group of police who were kind of clearing the streets, telling people not to gather. And so the men started throwing stones at the police and the police gave chase. And later they said they, they were firing live rounds into the air because they wanted to scare the young men. But as they were doing it, of course, people are looking out their windows, coming to their doors, trying to see what all the ruckus is about. The men left Eastly and went down into Mathari Valley, this slum kind of on the edge of this dirty river. And they were in the, the marketplace, this rabbit warren of streets and alleys, being chased by the police. And kids were up on the balconies of these high rises on the edge. This little girl, Stephanie Mora, eight years old, was hit by a policeman's bullet and killed. And for her parents, it didn't give her much consolation that this was an accident. She was the 30th person killed that week in post-election violence. And so that Sunday I was preaching in the church that we attend in Nairobi, and I was just overcome by like, how is it that we live in a world like this where this is normal? That every time there's an election, and it doesn't matter if it's in Africa or in the US or Canada, that we just tear each other apart that we become so divisive, that we forget that we're in this together. And certainly that's been one of the great challenges in all of the places we've worked in mm-hmm. So today I want to read to you from 1 Peter, some two, two passages, and John has given me his, his beautifully uh, highlighted Bible. I just, uh, I've been asked what kind of Bible this is, John Campbell? Where is John Campbell? Yeah, a step-over. Oh, he just stopped, of course. <laughs> I'm going to read John Campbell's Bible, which is beautifully, beautifully. And, um, and it's behind me, this is the, uh, uh, the English Standard Version. But. In this you greatly rejoice, not, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, uh, so that your faith of greater worth than gold will perish, uh, which perishes even, I think I'm going the wrong spot. Yeah, verse 3, okay, it's just a little bit. Okay, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. The word of the Lord. I love that Peter says we have a living hope, a hope that's alive, a hope that's undimmed, a hope that can't be taken away from us. We are on the victory side already. I have to be reminded of this when we go through something like the election that we saw the summit in Kenya. I have to to be reminded of this when I read the news. There are times when Eric and I will will say we have to fast from the newspaper. (laughs) We need to turn off the radio. If we hear another Donald Trump reference, we're gonna pull our hair out. Um, we just need to kind of get away from it and and I think that's healthy but I think we can also get into this place where we say I I can't be bothered with the rest of the conflict and the pain and the brokenness of the world I need to focus on those relationships that give me the greatest joy my family and my friends and my congregation You know, what's right here in front of me and that is good but it can become twisted, we can become so focused on those who are around us that we forget that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said that we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be dimmed. And so, um, so God calls us to a mission to be a part of a living hope that extends far beyond those fami- uh, familial ties. When I read this passage, I also think of the movie The Princess Bride. <laughs> 30 years this, this fall. So, Any of you remember The Princess yes. Bride? <laughs> So, that, so if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, it's a story within a story. There's this little boy he's sick, played by Fred Savage from the TV show The Wonder Years in the 80s, if you remember that. So the little boy is sick, and his grandfather, played by Peter Falk, sits beside his bedside and starts to read him a fairy tale to make him feel better. And he's reading the fairy tale about this dashing young Wesley who tries to re- save his buttercup from the evil Humperdinck, uh, and, uh, and there's this point in the story where it seems that Humperdinck has won, that Wesley is dead, that evil has triumphed, and and the grandson interrupts the grandfather and says, "What kind of story are you reading me? Like, this is terrible. Shut that book. It can't end like this." And the son, the grandson, has this crisis of faith. Does he trust the grandfather? Does he trust the storyteller? Does he trust the author to go on and see what happens next? And I, when I hear this passage from Peter, I think. You know, do we trust the storyteller? Do we trust our father, the author? Do we trust in the midst of the darkness and the pain and the brokenness that's all around us that this isn't how the story ends? That God is going to do something surprising. His redemptive work changes the story, but we don't expect it to change. Are we reminded that our hope is kept for us in heaven, undimmed? It will not spoil. It will not fade. So Peter talks about this living hope, but... Peter not only talks about it for our own personal benefit and psychological well-being, uh, but he also talks about that this is a hope that it should change the way we live, that it drives us into the communities where God has called us. And if we go to um, verse chapter three, go, yeah, verses on, Actually, I'm going to read from verse 13 down to 17, chapter three. Um, Peter says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, nor uh, do not be frightened, but in your hearts set Christ apart as holy. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So three things that um, jump out at us when we think about this passage. And as Canadian Baptists, we talk about God's mission in the world as integral mission. And by that, we mean that, that the gospel touches every dimension of life. It changes our relationship with God, with one another. It changes the way we, we look at work. It changes the way we look at the environment. It changes everything. And we talk about bearing witness to Christ in our words and in our deeds. And often, words and, word and deed becomes the lingo that we as Canadian Baptists use when we try to talk about holistic ministry or transformational mission in the world. Um, I think there's something missing. Eric and I have talked a lot about this. When we teach uh, Integral Mission uh, with our colleagues in Africa, we talk first about character and that uh, it is our being, it's who we're becoming, it's the quality of our relationships, it's our presence in the communities where God has placed us. And Peter talks, I think he touches on this in a couple of ways in this passage, about who are we, who are we we becoming in the world. I think the Apostle Paul also touches on this one. when Paul says, I'll paraphrase, um, you can speak the most perfect words, the most eloquent words, with the tongues of angels, and you can do all the right things. You can make all the right decisions. You can even let your body become a sacrifice for the Lord. Mm-hmm. But if you do not have love, if you do not have the character of Christ, your words are noise. Your actions are meaningless. And then he goes on and he talks about love. And we often refer to that, we often use that passage in weddings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so much more than that. This is what we're called to, you know, how we're to live our lives. This is uh, Jeremiah and from the African Christian Church and Schools. And uh, Jeremiah is a leader who's had some great challenges. We've partnered now for almost 50 years with the ACCNS. And, and every partnership, like I think any congregation, has its highs and its lows, right? Every organization goes through times of great leadership and great life and fatality and low times. The last three years have been low times for the ACCNS. Um, and a big part of it was that there were certain leaders at the center of the organization. Who were very insecure, who made a lot of decisions out of self interest and not out of interest for the organization. So when Jeremiah became elected last Christmas as the new moderator or leader of the denomination, there was this collective sigh of relief. Eric and I were there on this day of his induction service, and it was incredible to see the change. This book, 7,000 people gathered, and Jeremiah is walking up and down the aisles with his wife outside in this big lawn. And he's naming pastors and their wives by name, like calling them off the stand, without a cheat sheet. He was recognizing these people who had really been marginalized for, for many years. Um, a part of our role as team leaders is um, that in each of these countries we, we spend time with the leaders, and we try to talk about where are the gaps, where are the needs, how can we as Canadian Baptists come alongside of them as they fulfill God's mission in their communities. And often those conversations come around the money. It's about resources. If we had this, we could do this. If we could just, you know, get enough resources, we could solve this problem. Well, when we met with Jeremiah, um, that was not how the conversation went at all. He said to Eric and I, you need to pray for us. Canadian Baptists need to pray for a revival in our churches because our people are broken and our spirits are crushed. it It was wonderful to see the humility and the openness To say, we have a spiritual problem, and our people need to experience their first love. That's our primary concern and need in this denomination. And then over the next 40 days, Jeremiah started calling all of the leaders in the church, from pastors to executive leaders, to 40 days of prayer and fasting. And at the end of that 40 days, they had these prayer vigils all over the country, where whole congregations were together, overnight praying together, worshipping together, and asking forgiveness. Of one another and of God, that they would be the people that God had called them to be. Um, Eric and I have had the chance—I think about five different. Oh, Eric has signed a new partnership agreement with the ECCNS, so we're now committed to walking with them as Canadian Baptists to 2020. That's our new agreement. And, uh, and in the spirit of that agreement, we've traveled a lot with Jeremiah. And on five Sundays since he became the moderator, we worshiped with him in churches. And in the video, we showed you a little glimpse of something we see him do every time. So, just before the sermon, he gets up in front of the congregation, and you can see him kind of scanning, and then he starts calling up women with babies in their arms. Mm. And then he looks for pregnant mothers. And then he looks for the children and the uh, youth. And then the mzays, the the old distinguished men and women of the congregation. Pretty soon everyone's at the front of the church. (laughs) And then he reaches down and he picks up a baby. And he starts passing the babies around. This wouldn't go in a Canadian congregation. (laughs) Probably some law we break, but pretty soon everyone's holding up the babies like Lion King. (laughs) And then he leads them to bless these children and to bless this generation that God has entrusted the ACC in this way. As he lifts up these young people, lifts up the congregation, It's it's beautiful. What's the difference between Jeremiah and the leader who came before him? Well, it's not that he's more skilled or better educated. The real difference, I think, is character. It's what I think Peter gets at here when he says that, don't be troubled, don't be afraid, don't be driven by your fears, but in your heart, keep Christ the Lord's spirit. If we make decisions of fear, they will always be wrong decisions. If we make decisions of faith, if we respond to others in faith, that's in line with the gospel. So Peter then talks about, so our character matters. But then he talks about our words. Um, This is uh, Garissa in uh, the northeastern uh, part of Kenya. And if you were to look at um, the map of Kenya, the north and the coast is pretty much Muslim. 20% of the population is Muslim, and that's where most of them live. And then the 80% Christian are kind of in the interior. In fact, most of Africa is like that. If you look at a map of Africa, the north and the coastline are high-density Muslim where the interior tends to be more Christian. And so, here in Garissa, it's considered the gateway between the Christian South and the Muslim North of Kenya. And as Canadian Baptists, we've worked here for a long time. In fact, Eric and I, when we first moved to Kenya, our first six years was just focused on Muslim ministry. And this is an area that we worked a lot. But we changed our tact, or our approach. In 2011, we, we stopped focusing on Canadians reaching out to Muslims, and really focused on trying to help local churches to Muslims in their community. And we did that through a program we called Bridge. Uh, and it was an idea that a local congregations wouldn't build up walls but build bridges into their communities. And we found seven uh, congregations that were open to this in Garissa. And so pastors and lay people from those congregations started coming together. And this is Ibrahim, he was a real champion for us. He's the pastor of the longest standing church in Garissa, uh, the um, East African Pentecostal Church, Pentecostal church of Arissa which he's pastored since 1979 and uh, he, he, he is just a spitfire, he just loves people and he loves the Lord well around around in, 2000, in 2011 while we were starting this program something else shifted dramatically and that was um, that the Kenyan military moved into Somalia they were trying to chase out this group called uh, El Shabaab or the youth They were this um, terrorist group that kind of came out of the fallout of the Islamic Union courts that lost power in Mogadishu in 2008. And as they moved in trying to quell uh, the uh, terrorist organization, they responded to Kenya with terrorist attacks. And so you've probably seen in the news the Westgate Mall attack or the University College of Garissa attack. They've attacked bus stations and police stations and public works. What doesn't get covered as much in the news is their attack on churches. And Ibrahim's was the first congregation they attacked. It was November 7, 2011. Uh, It was a prayer meeting in his church, and as they were praying Saturday night into Sunday morning, they threw grenades at his church. Um, They killed one person and injured four others. And when that happened, many of the churches in Garissa were like, we're out of here. (laughs) Pastors were saying, we didn't sign up for this, I'm getting my family, we're getting out of here. And God used Ibrahim really to be the shepherd to pull people back and say, no, no, we need to stay. We cannot be afraid. God is with us. And we are dead in Christ. Even if, even if I was to die in my church that night, I know that I'm already alive in Jesus. Maybe not the most inspiring speech, but <laughs> God was using Ibrahim to keep people there. Then something happened in 2013. Um, the underground uh, movement—so uh, these are Muslim background believers in Garissa that can't openly be Christian—were um, targeted. Um, Pastor Abdeweli, who was a, well, a mentor in our bridge program, many of you would probably know Paul and Kelly Carline. They're Canadian Baptist missionaries from 1995 until 2011. They often wrote about Abdi. This is who they were talking about, and uh, Abdi. Um, but one night, a group of men shut up his door, knocked on the door, and said, We know who you are. We know what you're doing. We need to leave or we're going to kill you. Abdueli went to Ibrahim and said, Ibrahim, you are my spiritual father. Pray for me. Pray for my family. Ibrahim heard what had happened and said to Abdueli, You need to leave. You need to take your wife and your son and you need to leave. And Ibrahim said, I mean, Abdueli said, to Ibrahim, what do you mean? You've been telling the exact opposite of every pastor and every Christian in this community. And Ibrahim said to Abduhele, You are different. We are Christians. We've come to this place because God has called us. And maybe we will live and maybe we will die. But you are an apostate. You are a Muslim who has become a Christian. And they will kill you. And there will be no blood of guilt on their hands. Abduweli said, I can't go. God has called me here to my people to preach the gospel, to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in me, and to do it, do it with gentleness and respect. And so uh, it was two weeks later, it was on um, the 13th of February, 2013, and um, Abduweli and Ibrahim were driving Abduweli's car, and they had just either stopped or were leaving the bank on the second street of Barissa when uh, El Shabab gunmen came out and surrounded the car. They opened fire and killed Abduweli. And one of the gunmen shot a bullet to the back window, and it hit Ibrahim in the back and exited out his chest. Um, people were in the street, seeing what was happening. And as the gunmen fled, a Muslim man, a Somali, ran to the car, and opened the door, and pulled Ibrahim out, put him in his own car, and got him to the hospital. Two days later, um, he was in Nairobi, at the Nairobi Hospital. And Eric and I were in the hospital room with his two sons and pretty much every pastor in Garissa. <laughs> And it was a miracle. He lived. God had spared his life. Not only did he live, but he was propped up on pillows, and like any good Pentecostal minister, he was preaching at us. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing here? Go back. Go back to Garissa. God loves these people. God loves everyone. And it was a Muslim man who pulled the trigger, but it was a Muslim man who pulled me from my car. Said, go back. Um, he's been to such a testimony, um, and Ibrahim has gone back. After he left the hospital, uh, an American well-wisher brought him to the U.S. to recuperate and offered to arrange for him to stay in the United States, to stay away from persecution. But Ibrahim said, no, I have to go back. My church is waiting for me. And so he's still pastoring at the uh, East African Pentecostal Church of Grissa. He graduated from the Bridge Program, and by the time we finished the Bridge Program, every one of the 30 churches of Gissa had representatives in the program. Ibrahim had never received a diploma or a degree before, but here he is. And in fact, he's surrounded here by leaders of the Grissa Pastor Fellowship. Every one of them were the leaders who were ready to leave in 2011, and Ibrahim kept them there. God is at work, moving through this church. It's not easy to give a defense for the hope that is in us, but God calls us to do it. But we can't forget the way he calls us is with gentleness and respect. To be able to listen and care about the people, to love the people, that we're to share the gospel with. They're not just numbers, they're not just projects. They're people. This is Rose Stanley, she's one of the graduates of the Bridge Program. And Rose um, thought her mission was to Christian women. She came to Garissa to reach Christian women. and So she would have these tea, Bible studies, the women would come, they'd open the Bible, they'd fellowship together, they'd share their lives together. She thought that was her mission. And then through the Bridge Program she realized I wasn't a part of God's mission at all. God wants me to be reaching out, not in. And so now those same Christian women gather every week with Rose, with tea, but they're bringing Muslim women from the community into that group. They're targeting young mothers, these young expectant mothers They talk about breastfeeding and nutrition and postnatal and prenatal care. They share their lives together, they pray together. And Rose says, now I'm involved in God's mission. Finally, Peter talks about our actions, that it's our, it's our sharing God's light and hope uh, through our behavior, uh, to the, the way that we work and move in the world. Um, in this passage, if you start in verse 13 and go to verse 17, there are four times when um, Peter talks about what we do, our behavior, our good works. And I won't reread the whole passage just for time, but just notice here, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ... May be put to shame, for it is better for suffering for suffer suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Um, our works matter. Our actions matter. The way that we carry the gospel into our lives, into our communities. This is Nasuru, and oh, I'm going Too fast. Oh. We have about two minutes. Okay, good. Get yeah, ready. Yeah. This is Nasuru, and uh, she uh, is a kindergarten teacher, a Muslim kindergarten teacher in the community. Mivamoni Mifamoni. is uh, part of Kenya at the high HIV AIDS rate. One in two, 20 people are HIV positive. And Nasuru has seen the impact of HIV AIDS in her community, but it really came home to her in 2004. She had this little girl come to her class. And first day of school, all the kids are excited to be there. And there's this one little girl, unkept, and dirty, she doesn't have any lunch. And all week long, Nasuru kept noticing this girl coming back, coming back, no food, unkept. She was getting quite angry. And so by Friday, she took the little girl by the hand and she marched her home. And by the time she arrived at the house, she had the speech in her mind. She was ready to give it to these parents both barrels. But as soon as she walked in the house, um, she discovered that the little girl, Ruth's father, had died of AIDS and that her mother was bedridden. And the surah told, told us that she knelt down beside the mother and the speech evaporated. And she said, I, I just want you to know that I'm gonna make sure that your daughter's okay. And so from that day onward, Nisuru took two lunches to school. Um, Before that year was over, Ruth's mother had died of AIDS. And the African Brotherhood Church, our partner in that community, had heard her story and reached out to Nisuru and said, we have a program called the Guardians of Hope, and we can help you. We can help you make sure that Ruth can finish school, that her school fees will be paid, and that we know that you need support as a caregiver. And Nisuru said, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim. And the pastor said, that doesn't matter. You need to come and be a part of us. And so when we were in uh, Mivamoni this past summer for the Guardians of Hope program called the Camp Tumayini, we met with Misuru. She's the only Muslim woman in this group. Ruth has now graduated from high school. Uh, Thanks to your support as Canadian Baptist, she's been able to finish school. And we asked her, why are you still a part of this group? You're not a beneficiary anymore. Ruth has now gone off and she's starting her own life. Why are you here? And Misuru said to us, because these are the people doing God's will is it. Isn't it powerful? I mean, can that be said of us and our churches? We are the people doing God's will for building. Um, I really encourage you to be praying for the work that Canadian Baptists are doing and to be involved in it. Um, Eric and I uh, are excited. I know that last week Daryl Bussin was talking to you about the Praxis program. There are still seats in Praxis, and any one of you would be eligible to go and be a part of Praxis. Uh, it's fully paid for, um, all for two weeks, travel to Bolivia, get a part of the work there. We have application forms and more information about Praxis, which we can talk to you about during the luncheon or we can leave you here at the office. It's just a great opportunity to go and to see and to be a part of that work. Uh, Lois Mitchell is going to be leading the next Praxis trip to Bolivia, but then one, one happens every year. And if you don't, may maybe next year, uh, May isn't going to work for you, Well, be praying for it, that you might take part in one of those opportunities to go and to see and to learn and to be a part of this book.